he must become greater and I must become less. Words of John the Baptist, or in some other translations, he must increase and I must decrease. So as a way into this morning's reflection on this verse, what I want to do is give three kind of examples and ask, are each of these an example of increasing or decreasing? The first, Isaac Newton, famous for his falling apple. Newton discovered and introduced the laws of gravity in the 1600s, which revolutionized astronomical studies. But reading around this week, I discovered that few know that if it weren't for Edmund Haley, the world might never have learned from Newton. Because it was Haley who challenged Newton to think through his original notions. Haley corrected Newton's mathematical errors and prepared figures to support his discoveries. Haley coaxed the hesitant um, Newton to write his great work, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. Haley, it was Haley who edited and supervised the publication and actually financed its printing, even though Newton himself was much richer and could have easily afforded the printing costs. Historians have called it one of the most selfless examples in the annals of science. Newton rose to prominence almost immediately and began to reap the benefits of the discovery, while Haley, on the other hand, discovered little, sorry, got little credit. Though he did use principles to predict the orbit and return of a comet that would later bear his name. But even though Newton shot to fame, Haley remained a devoted scientist who didn't care who received the credit as long as the cause was being advanced. He must increase and I must decrease. Or maybe this morning we could think of the Peanuts cartoon where Linus tells Charlie Brown, when I, when I get big, I'm going to be a humble little country doctor. I live in the city, see, and every morning I'll get up, climb into my sports car and zoom out to the countryside. Then I'll start healing people. I'll heal them for miles around. And in the last frame, he exclaims, because then I could be a world-famous, humble little doctor. He must increase I must decrease. And it's fascinating too that on Thursday night on night reaches, it got to the very end of the evening, probably shortly after two in the morning, a couple arrived on the doorstep of the church and wanted some prayer. And as we came in and sat at that back corner and I listened to some of their story and life experience, it turned out that that very evening they had been forced by, from their home by the paramilitaries and were sitting at the back of our church with all they could gather in two bags for the weeks that lay ahead. And as we sat and chatted, the irony of what happened next wasn't wasted on me. Because even though probably completely out of context, the wife of the, the couple turned to me and said, he must increase and I must decrease. Not a mention that I was going to be thinking or even preaching about that this morning. So, he must increase and I must decrease. What about the statement by George Carlin who says the following? 
The paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings, but shorter tempers. Wider freeways, but narrower viewpoints. We spend more, but have less. We buy more, but we enjoy less. We have bigger houses, yet smaller families. More conveniences, yet less time. We have more degrees, but less sense. More knowledge, but less judgment. More experts, yet more problems. More medicine, yet less wellness. We have multiplied our possessions, but reduced our values. We talk too much, love too seldom, hate too often. We have done larger things, but not better things. He must increase, and I must decrease. Keep those scenarios mulling over in your mind as we take a journey through the text that June Papp has just read for us. I wonder what it must have been like for John the Baptist. Here was that crazy desert preacher eating bugs, calling Pharisees a brood of vipers, people thinking that he was maybe Elijah resurrected, causing quite a stir for his time and developing quite a following. His preaching was startling, convincing, passionate. Even Jesus says in Matthew 11 and 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, since John's mission was to go before Jesus and prepare the way for him, as Mark alludes to in chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, the time came when John needed to fade into the background of the Bible story and allow Jesus his place. And it is with great grace and humility that John the Baptist then says in John chapter 3, he must increase and I must decrease. Because in the passage that we have read and shared together this morning, what we witness and encounter are two thriving ministries that were taking place close to one another. And we don't know the exact location of Jesus and John's ministries, but we do know that they were both somewhere along the River Jordan, which they were using for baptisms. And John clarifies this point in chapter 4 when he says that Jesus wasn't actually performing baptisms himself, but rather it was his disciples that were. But in chapter 3 and verse 24, we get a little bit more of the detail. Because John alludes to the fact that John the Baptist at this point had not yet been thrown into prison. I think that the apostle here wants us to know that the events recorded happened before John's imprisonment. But the incident and the verses that we read this morning detail a report or a dispute or a discussion that arose between John, the Baptist disciples, and a Jew. Some early manuscripts may read the Jews, but I think scholarship agrees that probably the singular is the most probable. And this dispute was about purification. The apostle John doesn't give us any further clarification, so we can only guess at the nature of of the discussion. Probably it had to do with whether John's baptisms were superior to the Jewish rites of purification, 
which John in his gospel had already alluded to when Jesus performs his first sign of turning water into wine. And in the present context, we see Jesus alluded to as the bridegroom. He's come to bring people into joyous relationship with himself, not to haggle over Jewish ceremonies. It's not outward Jewish ceremonies that purify one heart, one's heart, but rather birth from above, as Steve was preaching about last Sunday. So John wants us here to see that Jesus' ministry went beyond the ceremonial legalism of Judaism. But at any rate, the debate between John's disciples and this Jew may have included may have included the Jews' comment that the Baptist ministry was being eclipsed by Jesus' growing ministry. This led John's disciples to come with him with their concern. Let your eye look down to verse 26. Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. Their emphasis. All are coming to him. Was no doubt supposed to spawn, was no doubt maybe spawned by resentment or jealousy. John's disciples were jealous on his behalf because everybody was going to Jesus. Jesus' ministry was thriving, yet John was being eclipsed. But that very comment then sets the scene for John's the Baptist's comment, which is a great lesson in humility. Because what we discover as we journey through this section of the text is that John's humility clearly stemmed from the fact that he knew who God was and who he was. He didn't have inflated views of himself. He wasn't out to build his own self-esteem or promote his own ministry or reputation. Rather, his goal really was to promote and point people towards Jesus. And John the Baptist then replies to his disciples by saying, A man cannot receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. What John the Baptist is saying here is that as a forerunner, a role that was given to him by God, he must stay within that role. And his words also apply to Jesus. Because any popularity or success that Jesus enjoyed in his ministry clearly came from the Father. And in verse 28 of our reading, John reminds his disciples that he said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Clearly, John knew that Jesus was the longed for and promised Messiah. And he was just part of of that story. By the time we reach then verse 29, we see John alluding to some illustrations from Jewish weddings. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Now, to fully understand this comment, we need to figure out 
a little bit about Jewish wedding custom. So let's journey through this together. Bear with me. This is how things would have worked in a typical Jewish wedding custom. First came the betrothal. The young man prepared the marriage contract, which he presented to the intended bride and her father. From that then came the acceptance. So if the So if the proposal was to be accepted, the young man would pour a cup of wine for his beloved and wait to see if she drank it. If she drank it, the proposal had been accepted and the young man would then give gifts to his beloved. He would then take his leave only to return later and collect her because he would have to go away and construct the wedding chamber. So before leaving, the young man would announce, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will return for you when it's ready. Sound familiar to some of Jesus' words when we've read in the scriptures about his going to heaven to prepare a place for us, returning for us. This idea of Jesus as the ultimate bridegroom and us then, the church, as his bride, littered in, in, littered through scripture in imagery. So while the bridegroom was away preparing, the bride would be making herself ready. And when the wedding chamber was ready, the bridegroom would return to collect his bride. And when the groom and his friends got close to the bride's house, they would give a shout or a blow of a ram's horn trumpet to let her know to be ready. And when the party arrived at the father's house, the newlyweds went into the wedding chamber for seven days of honeymoon, and the groom's best friend stood outside waiting for the groom to tell him that the marriage had been consummated. And here we have in John, the gospel according to John, John the Baptist alluding to himself as that friend of the bridegroom. He realizes that Jesus' time has now come. That marriage contract between God and his people is on earth in the living form of his son, and the time has now come to rejoice in it. John knew that Jesus was the promised bridegroom and that the bride belongs to him. Now, of course, he would have been familiar with that because Old Testament scriptures often pointed towards God as the bridegroom. For example, in Isaiah 54 and 5, God tells Israel, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Or Isaiah 62 and 5, And as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Or in Hosea 2 and 16, the Lord tells Israel that in the future they will call their Lord my husband. And he promises that I will betroth you to me forever. This imagery of bride and bridegroom constantly at the fore. And notice, reflecting back on Jesus' first sign, it's at a wedding that he performs his first miracle or sign, turning the water into wine. This imagery is so important. And then as we come into the New Testament, we see that explained and detailed in further detail. In Matthew 9 and 15, we read, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
or even look at verses in Corinthians, Ephesians, and Revelation, constantly this image of God as bridegroom and we as the bride. Now, I'm going to do something that even is going to shock me right now. I'm going to quote Calvin from the Institutes, and not because I've ran out of Rihanna lyrics or West End quotes or Mumford illusions, but because actually I think Calvin sums this up, what sums up what this passage is all about in the opening statement of the Institutes. PCI would actually probably be delighted that money they spent for me to spend training for three years is going to pay off with this one single quote. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And in the text we've been reading this morning, we see that John the Baptist was clear about who he was in the presence of Christ. People were wondering, was he the longed-for Messiah? But yet, he emphatically denies it. I am not the Christ. Then he goes on towards the end of chapter 3 to say, you yourselves are my witnesses that I have said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. This stemming from John's comment that a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. John recognizing that his unique role in history was not something he had achieved by his own brilliance or hard work, but rather something that had been graciously given to him so he could point people to Jesus. It had nothing to do with anything good in John. In fact, John continues preaching and baptizing even as he sees his influence waning in comparison with Jesus' ministry. But John's disciples... They're concerned because the numbers are going down. The numbers following John are depleting, and John just doesn't seem to be doing anything about correcting the situation. But when they talk to John the Baptist about their concerns, he explains that their cause for concern was actually his cause for great joy. John wasn't trying to build a following for John, but rather a following for Jesus. So this morning, as we come to this text, we want to ask ourselves, do we try to make it all about us? Are we looking in life for the spotlight, for the applause, for the acclaim? Do the words of John the Baptist saying, I must decrease and he must increase, jar with how we move around in the world? Are we content this morning in who we are, just as John the Baptist was content in who he was, even though people were leaving him and following Jesus? Because as we journey through the gospel according to John, we will time and time again come back to two words, spiritual growth. Steve spoke about this last week. That's what we this morning can take away from this reading. God increasing and us decreasing is spiritual growth. But that's, that's a personal thing because God works in people differently and at different speeds and in different ways. So this morning, really, what we want to say and do is ask ourselves, is there aspects, are there areas in our own lives that need to decrease to allow God to increase? I suppose last Sunday night at the Gospel, according to the West End, 
we were talking about how often in life sometimes and in our relationships we like to set the agenda. We like to set the boundaries. We like to set the lines that can and can't be crossed. But that is not how God works. Because this relationship with God is all about surrender. It's all about letting go of my own perceived self-importance, about me decreasing and allowing him to increase. So this morning, as we draw to a close, I'm going to ask Neil to come and just play and have a bit of silence and just reflect this morning. Is there anything in my life? Is there anything in our church life? Is there anything in our denomination's life that needs to decrease to, in order to, or sorry, to enable God to increase? So let's reflect on that, and then I'll close with a prayer before we sing our final praise. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, this morning we have read words from your word that tell us that we must decrease while you must increase. And we realize how that goes against the grain of how our society operates and moves. But we know that we are called to be a different people. That we come to church from the week that has been maybe anxious about the week that lies ahead. But hoping that as we come here that we would encounter you in spirit and in truth. And then that we would go back into the world changed from how we came in. Better equipped. Ready to serve willing to show your love and your grace. So we pray this morning that we would go from here into the rest of today, examining maybe our own lives, our own hearts, our own motives, our own objectives, our own goals, and asking, are we trying to increase ourselves, or are we trying, trying to increase you and your glory in the, in the situations, in the family settings, in the circumstances we find ourselves in. Father, lead us on as a people. Help us to grow spiritually. Help us to become the people you long us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.